is Soft Power Radio on KWNK 97.7 LPFM. Today, we are in conversation once again with Samantha Kuttner, fellow at the Khalifa Eiler Institute, Proud Boys subject matter expert, dancer, and founder of the Glitter Pill community. The Glitter Pill, in Kuttner's own words, is a pluralistic, joyful, creative, human-centered approach to understanding the news, arming yourself for important conversations, replenishing your spirit, and engaging with critical thought and grassroots activism for building a more just and peaceful society. Learn more at proudboyswhisperer.com slash glitterpill. We'll be catching up with Samantha to see what she has been working on. Returning, of course, to our favorite topic, the Proud Boys, crypto-fascism, and what to do about it. We'll look for ways to reground this and other political discussions in the economic and lived realities of people's actual lives, rather than allowing ourselves to become distracted by the glamour and emotion of all-out ideological warfare. And we'll spend some time discussing how to develop healthy resilience when engaging with extremism. That means maintaining a balanced, nuanced perspective and leaving plenty of room for honest self-care. I'm Samantha Kuttner, a fellow at the Khalifa Eiler Institute, and I've been up to a lot of different things. Uh, The one that I'm trying to prioritize the most right now is writing my book. Uh, I've also been getting my incident map going again. I'm managing the Proud Boys data subset of the Khalifa Eiler hate map data. So we've moved it to Airtable and we've opened it up to the public. So now people can report specifically incidents co-attended, targeted or organized by Proud Boys um, in this subset of the data, which I'm managing. And I'm really excited to make that available. Um, I'm also thinking about ways to bring more resources to the Glitter Pill community. Um, Recently, uh, I was conceptualizing what would a grad student equivalent program be for people to bring them up to speed on issues related to extremism and political violence. But I feel like sometimes people in this space can consume information to numb from things. So I want to balance the the self-care practices we do in the group with the diligence study and activism so nobody burns out or nobody numbs through consuming and needing to know everything, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, before we move on, uh, I would love to hear about your book, you know, so whatever, you know, you're willing to share at this point, even if it's very kind of general description, um, I'd love to hear sort of what that project entails. Well, uh, right now it's in its early stages, but it will utilize the ethnographic research with members of the group. I've been approved to share excerpts where I've interviewed the chairman of the Proud Boys. Um, That's contingent on his approval. Uh, He and I last spoke just a day or so before he went to prison to serve his sentence. Um, It will cover where Proud Boys fit in the scope of far right, fascism, 
ultra-nationalism. All these terms are used interchangeably. Not everyone has a clear conception because it can mean so many different things in different contexts. So I'm trying to rein in the chaos of all these different terminologies to give people a comprehensive picture of, you know, what's traditionally understood to be uh, fascism, what's traditionally understood to be populism, what makes groups like the Proud Boys similar to other groups that have existed in the past and what are the unique features of the group that make them distinct. Um, and then it'll get into the role of charismatic leaders, uh, you know, a brief, not history of charismatic leaders, but notable ones that are relevant. And then seeing how figures like Gavin McGinnis uh, were able to build on the momentum of their public persona to recruit uh, and then where Tario took it from there. So it's part evolution of the leadership and all of that will be interwoven, at least in my head right now, <laughs> with uh, the OSINT data. Um, so it's, I want it to be as comprehensive of a resource as possible, not just for the academic space, but for the public to understand the unique threat that groups like the Proud Boys pose. And the ultimate understanding of the group is that whether or not Cowboys um, survive this period where people are beginning to put accountability measures in place. The tactics that they use to gain momentum will outlive them. So I want people to have an understanding of not just the group and the evolution of the group, but the tactics and how to become more resilient against them as not scholar, not just scholars, not just activists, but the public in general. I want, in a perfect world, which I doubt once it gets through academic publishing, in a perfect world, I would want it to be gifted to someone's kind of Archie Bunker type uncle to get a better understanding of the narratives they're consuming uh, and see where it's coming from and how their sense of patriotism and stuff is being co-opted. Um, so it's very ambitious. There are many different audiences that it can potentially help. I wanted to reach as many different audiences as possible. But the first step is um, just revising what the editors uh, sent me for the proposal to get it officially approved and then just start wrangling everything together. Um, as far as your book goes, right, what's, um, you know, how would you conceptualize, like, I guess just to generalize it, like your average boomer lefty mentality, how does that person, if you ask them, what, who are the proud boys, right? Mm-hmm. How do you feel like they would answer that? And I mean, oh, they'd be like, oh, they're Nazis. And then they'd use like Hitler comparisons. And then that just feeds directly into far right narratives. I mean, Gavin McGinnis wore a t-shirt on his show once that said literally Hitler to make fun of that type of demographic. I think that um, there's a sense of righteousness in condemning what's easily condemned. It's like saying rape is bad, you know? I mean, if you're in, I was going to say something about if you're in Texas, that might be debatable. That's not politically correct. Um, but yeah, um, there is this sense of like, they're this overt manifestation of the bad thing. And if I condemn them, then I'm somehow more righteous or justified. And I don't think on either side, there's a, 
there's a self-awareness and understanding of their own inner biases or, you know, I feel like on the, on the liberal boomer side, you have people that are desperately running away from the perception of being racist for being perceived as racist. And then on the right, you have people that feel persecuted for their inability to say racist things and uphold a racist system that has benefited them in some way or they feel benefits them in some way, if they're of the multicultural group within the Proud Boys. That was Reason Time by the Abyssinians. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Samantha Kuttner about the perceived and the real values of far-right groups like the Proud Boys. Learn more about Kuttner's work at ProudBoysWhisperer.com. It's not just 
as easy as identifying who are the Nazis and who are the other guys, right? Mm -hmm. You know, one similarity that's very clear, and it's something you mentioned earlier, has to do with like the charismatic leader, right? Um, Maybe talk, you know, a little bit about how like groups like this essentially always need a leader, but how that relationship is never like, it's never really that straightforward. It's never really like that leader is their spokesperson necessarily, right? And how like there's this tension and the group sort of retains this autonomy from the leader that might even be like the most dangerous part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about um, how Proud Boys were championed and then temporarily discarded and, and now they're coming, coming back uh, in 2020 when Trump, you know, said when he's asked about the Proud Boys, stand back, stand by, you know, that resulted in a wave of recruitment for Proud Boys because it had the, like, uh, pretty much the official endorsement, right? Um, they formed in 2016 during Trump's presidential campaign. And that was the thing that gave the group power. And in 2020, they tried to return to that and he lost. And the Proud Boys were part of the largest group that led the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, Now they're looking for Trump 2024. And, And that's the majority of, not every Trump supporter is a Proud Boy, but the majority of Proud Boys are Trump supporters. Um, there's part of the mainstreaming of hatred and extremism where the lines have blurred between the average Trump supporter and, uh, you know, the average or what would be considered extremists in many contexts. One way kind of we're stuck in the past, um, that's kind of interesting is when you, when you mention Antifa, right. And sort of, um, and the, like, I think it's interesting formulation, right. And so basically this line being drawn by, you know, oh, they're anti-fascists. I think it's interesting that they're not patriotic and, um, you know, maybe one or two other connecting sentences and then, oh, they're communists, right? Um, I mean, really since the 30s or 40s, right? That's um, uh, a kind of an accusation that's been like uh, levied at anti-fascists. When you think about that, like we're talking 70, 80 years ago, right? Um, and uh, when you sort of reflect on how long we've been stuck in basically this same, like, you know, just bog of, you know, you're a communist, you're a fascist, you know, like kind of those kind of, basically that's been the discourse. Then you really do start to realize like, um, what's the alternative, right? So one of the reasons that um, I, you know, I, I was bringing up Mark Fisher in his book, Capitalist Realism, is because part of what I find myself being very sensitive to now is how played out a lot of these things seem and how it seems even kind of symptomatic of a deeper problem that when we encounter a political foe or some kind of thing that we consider dangerous, our first tendency is to like relate it to something similar that's happened in the past, right. That we have already identified as bad, right. We, it's like, we, we don't even really have a way to process new information and assimilate it into like today's world, you know, like we're always like, they're just like the Nazis or whatever, but at some point 
we can't keep using that, right? Like that is going to, I mean, obviously, historically, it's extremely significant, but it can't forever be, right? The only thing that we can refer to. And I think that, and this is what I want, I really want to hear your thoughts about it. I feel like that discourse is encouraged by whatever, you know, um, structure currently exists to kind of prevent us from talking about the real issues, which are economic issues that actually affect everybody and proud boys, perhaps more, more than most people or the people that are vulnerable to proud boy recruitment, right? Like the actual problems that people face Now, some of these issues are really wrapped up in this, but we, um, we end up unable to talk about them because all we can talk about a lot of the time is whether or not the proud boys and, you know, like the brown shirts are the same people, you know, even though that discussion seems hardly relevant to what's actually happening on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the more fitting jokes uh, that I played on the Proud Boys, because that's kind of their language and part of the ethnographic research is understanding that enough to be able to make jokes like that, uh, is around Halloween. I made a series of Trump hats, but with more realistic slogans. And one of them was uh, aspirational boomerism. Uh, and you know, the, the desire for this return to a glorious past where there's that house and the wife and the kids and the dog and the lawn, and, you know, you could be a bit of misogynist and it was fine. And a, and a woman knew her place and a man knew his because he knew where his woman was, right? That's kind of that thing. But when you talk to a lot of them, they're struggling with the same things that most people are struggling with, the ability to secure uh, consistent work, um, being able to uh, one day provide enough if they believe in marriage. You know, um, I, I mean, it's always easier to be like, oh, do over, um, you know, like, let's just go back to this past. But I think that Proud Boys have somehow misattributed the ills of capitalism and placed it on women and feminism. Like they view that as an emasculating force rather than capitalism is just a completely dehumanizing force. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad, don't you know no one alive can always be an angel? When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. You know, sometimes, baby, I'm so carefree. Joy that's hard to hide And then sometimes again it seems that all I have is worry And then you're bound to see my other side But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord, please don't 
That was Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood by Nina Simone. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Samantha Kuttner about the connection between masculinity and authoritarian movements. Sometimes when I think about maybe even what's happening in Texas, and I'll just kind of say this in the most crass way, mm-hmm. it's almost like, oh man, we need more poor people because yeah. the service industry is struggling. So well, how can we get more poor people? Oh, right. We'll make it harder for people without means to control um, the most important thing that they have, which is like uh, labor or like labor meant in a material way, like mm-hmm. you know, human beings who do labor. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's a book that my cousin recommended to me um, uh, called Caliban and the Witch uh, by this Italian woman. Um, I think her last name is Frederici or Federici, um, kind of about like very much connecting um, sort of the advent of capitalism with like witch hunts specifically and with kind of demoniz- the demonization of women and in particular with like control over people's bodies as a very direct way to, you know, control the most important resource that there is, right, which is like people to work. Um, mm-hmm. And so in light of that, you know, I kind of, would like to hear your thoughts too, as you know, the proud boys, this, the, the, um, you know, sometimes the gender element of it gets kind of folded in with like being a patriot, which means like being a man with a gun or something, but it's not really incidental at the same time that it is like a men's group. Right. Um, and even though there are kind of equivalent organizations, sort of satellite organizations, right. That you would see, you know, them have women participating and there's certainly plenty of women kind of, you know, involved in whether it's the insurrection or what, what have you across the board, whether it's oath keepers or proud boys or just militia groups, right. Not mm-hmm. only are these primarily men uh, or almost exclusively men, but they are very much foreground their, you know, manhood or whatever. And I think that they're, is an element there of um, like a misogyny that's linked more with an economic imperative, right? That almost has to do more with like, um, we need to control uh, the family, not because of it's nice to like have kids or whatever, but because like we need people to work and like the more of them, the better, right? Yeah, or men need women not to leave them. Uh, I, I do think Proud Boys 
part of their core identity is denigrating the feminine and not just women, but anything feminine or any feminine quality in themselves. Um, so the group is this excess, like, you know, this overperformance of masculinity. And like, I think freedom in any sense is for them the freedom to impose their will on others and exert control. And um, the less choice a woman has, the better. And they kind of skirt around that issue by saying, or back in the day, they were saying things like, you know, a woman can have a job, it's fine. But, uh, you know, she'd be much more happier and fulfilled if she was a housewife, you know? As if um, women could make that similar argument for men. In a, you know, you you can become an entrepreneur, but it's better to work a 40 hour work week so you can, you know, like just whenever you say all women should do this, all men will be happy if they do this, all women, you know, you're not only overgeneralizing, but you're, you know, you're trying to control the environment around you by controlling the people in your immediate vicinity uh, and proud boys have not only done that, but, you know, they've, they've become living memes. So uh, there was a rally in Albany a year or two back where they dressed in the, the clown world memes with signs uh, along with Patriot prayer that said, uh, abortion isn't funny, right? Um, so they could say it was a troll. They can say they were dressed as, you know, like that clown world Pepe type meme. But the end result is the same, being anti-abortion. So they feed into that overarching strategy and it helps them too. So it's like a mutually beneficial relationship that also reflects the worldview. So if they're trying to exert control, um, it's, you know, maybe we can say it's symptomatic of uh, crisis or yeah, the, the, you know, there's some crisis that's sort of being responded to, right? And and the idea is to kind of um, try to control your environment to kind of get a hold of what's happening. Um, and before we transition to kind of um, talking to something other than the Proud Boys, maybe describe in your own words what you feel like today, right? Trump's not in office anymore, um, or you know, so some people believe. Um, but uh, what um what do you feel like the crisis? really is, right? If you had to, if you had to say, right, that, you know, the Proud Boys appear at a particular moment, not just randomly, right, um, as, a, as a symptom of something, uh, and you don't, maybe the word crisis isn't right, but if you had to describe, you know, like, why, um, mm -hmm. uh, what would you say, you know, like, what, how would you, how would you identify, like, in, in broad terms, you know, like the, the, yeah, the state of things that, that brought them into existence. So women have feminism uh, and whether or not you agree with whatever strains exist in the world, there was some effort at consciousness raising. There hasn't really been a comparative men's movement it's more a reaction to feminism than an attempt to get at the crisis of masculinity and a deeper understanding of themselves. Because a lot of the masculine upbringing is like masculinity is 
not having that level of awareness, not having the emotional insight, not having the maturity. And if you do, you know, it's not just men who enforce the standard of not being weak. Women do as well. You know, like, uh, you know, why are you crying? I'll give you something to cry about or like needing to be the white knight. And I feel like there's a larger societal issue of uh, this crisis of masculinity, but men also left to their own devices. It's not necessarily the best thing. That was Forgive by Burial. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. Today, we are in conversation with Samantha Kuttner about the confusing and volatile political landscape and where we position ourselves, right, left, national, local, spectator, or participant. The most recent episode of your your podcast I listened to is, yeah, The Moments of Rupture 1. and you know, there's there's a lot in that uh, of trying to confront um, problems on the left. Uh, and something I read 
recently, maybe in that Fisher essay too, um, is kind of an interesting question uh, of, is there even a left, right? Like, does that even exist anymore, right? And um, I'd like to kind of hear, you know, you kind of talk about, um, because you definitely, you know, this is something that, you know, I've kind of heard you talk about a lot before. Um, we've kind of identified, you know, sort of some of the issues and threats kind of that we see from a group like the Proud Boys, right? What do you see as um, some of the problems that, you know, people who might identify currently um, as leftist activists, right? What, what are the problems that we see there? And, you know, I, I don't mean in relation to the Proud Boys, I mean, completely sort of, you know, in that world. Gatekeeping and the participation in gatekeeping of others. Um, and I call it the clout economy where like, you know, popularity is not necessarily gained by what you do or accomplish or try to accomplish, but denigrating anyone who doesn't perform to your standards. So there's, there's kind of that purity spiraling. Anyone successful is a grifter. Anyone doing this sustainably is a careerist. Like that's a bad thing to want to do this long-term. Um, I think that the far right has many fellow travelers because they're organizing. They're, they have this ideology. They benefit from the same policies moving forward in the same direction, whether or not you believe with other counterparts. Uh, that's something that the far right has. The far left, they tend to get into kind of like petty termino terminological debates. Um, not that I love to, as an academic, I love terminology and specificity and all that, but, um, you know, like pick your battles. They don't really know how to pick their battles. They're very, uh, from what I've seen engaged in fighting each other rather than trying to affect change. And there is a tendency to kind of eat their own whenever anyone reaches any degree of kind of success outside of the bubble that they've contained this person in. And um, I do think there is a lot of white male gatekeeping. There's like a need to protect and defend women. That's kind of a paternalism there, you know? And then when women have their own ways of doing things, um, that's like a threat to their organization. So like the accusations of being a grifter or a careerist or a fed or any of that just kind of happen. I hope it, it's gotten better since I was kind of really immersed in that. I mean, I've conducted ethnographic re uh, research with anti-fascists as well. And the largest thing that I never even asked, it just came up organically in conversations was like the level of infighting taking a toll on them and the trauma of not just the work itself, but being ostracized in a community where you felt that change was possible. And that's kind of heartbreaking to me that people can't get it together enough to realize, or they have the privilege to like never have to get it together and engage in these really petty disputes that really, it's like fighting each other in the service of nothing. Um, how much do you think that that might be because of the lack of a clear direction? Mm -hmm. Say that there is an American left, right? Um, what, what are we fighting for? 
Yeah, I just, I wonder how far we've really come since Occupy. I remember, I think it was Colbert even, who came up and was like, why are we here again? <laughs> like, not not to say like the, the effort wasn't important, but it, it never organized the extent that it got even more, you know, like there wasn't a concrete policy that was enacted as a result of that. But you can't just be, opposed to fascism or opposed to communism like it's very easy to react and it's harder to say okay do you affect change from within the systems you're in do you try to dismantle the systems that you're participating in what does that look like uh i i think that um it usually like trying to affect change at the university level for example uh was damn near impossible because everyone had these conversations about what should be done and the need to do something. And they hired me as a consultant for a few trainings. And they thought that was like where it stopped, you know? Oh, we hired her, so we're doing that. And then I realized it was less to affect change and more to show that they were making the effort, right? So I feel like appearances and keeping up appearances really big at the institutional level. Um, and if you're progressive enough or you're disruptive enough to potentially affect change, uh, it'll likely be quashed. Uh, so uh, I, I can't really say where we're at beyond um, let's do whatever we can to hope uh, Trump is not reelected. Uh, but I can say that part of the Proud Boys strategy in the future is to run members in um, every city for office. So if there's no counter to that, we could potentially see um, this, you know, quest for legitimacy being successful, even after the storming of the Capitol. So opposing that um, might be one concrete way by having people run for office in that way, especially people that are like, you know, they're probably not gonna wanna get involved in politics unless they see the necessity of that. Getting involved at the school board level because they're opposing uh, mask mandates, they're opposing, they're attacking critical race theory in elementary schools as if students are gonna be reading graduate level material. Um, they, this was like the next step after not being successful with this coup is to a target school boards and affect change locally. So getting involved locally at whatever level you can might be a good start. Crime, crime of passion, crime of 
KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Samantha Kuttner about the ways in which extremist ideologies work to distract us from lived reality. Righteous, politically motivated anger is first and foremost a powerful tool for discouraging self-reflection and ensuring ignorance of underlying economic and social issues. Learn more about Kuttner's work at ProudBoysWhisperer.com. On the site, you can view and contribute to one of Kuttner's projects, a Proud Boys incident map that tracks and catalogs extremist activity around the country. How much do you think that we're sort of failing maybe as, you know, leftist and progressive because of a certain conversation that we've now been conditioned to be um, afraid of having, right? Because, you know, we have a very built-in, and I certainly have this, right, um, wariness of talking about, you know, radical economic change, right? Like, if, if, if we ever say anything that might have any whiff of uh, Marxism to it or whatever, right, that we have to qualify it, we have to constantly, like, if, if we want to talk about class, like I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, like, we have to find other ways to... Um, to discuss it. We know that if we say too loudly that education should be free or whatever, you know, that like nobody is going to hear us in the way, in the way that we really want to be heard. Right. So how do we, how do we deal with that kind of challenge? Oh man, that's, that's a really important question. I think Highlighting the lived experiences of people who can't advance in life because of enormous debt, you know, people who have done, you know, quote unquote, the right thing, you know, and, and can't even begin to consider paying that amount back, whatever they take out for school, like getting people to reflect on, you know, is crippling debt the only way forward if you're poor um because there are grants that exist and there are other things that exist out there but they'll never get everything 
um, unless you're, you're the rare like scholarship or, you know, whatever it is. Um, as someone who's the product of public education, but also in debt, a considerable amount of, of student loan debt, I don't think that it should be the price to, to pay for an education, but to advance where I'm at in my field and nurture my um, curiosity in a way that I hope is societally important. That was kind of the bargain I made. But I also, and I wouldn't really encourage this. It's more just more of avoidance than anything. I don't even see that number as a real number. Like, I, I, I don't. Um, I, I think it reflects what we've prioritized. And I think it's another way to control the labor, the working force, right? If you can't control women's bodies um, by uh, making uh, abortion incredibly like dangerous and potentially criminal, um, then what do you do? You keep people who develop enough self-awareness shackled so much by debt that it doesn't matter what job they choose because they're in survival mode now. But the whole purpose of education, I would think, is to enlighten an individual enough to where they can make a like an impact on society and give back to their communities and give back to the country in some way. I don't think people have been able to really do that at the level where people could see a promise for eliminating student debt entirely. But I do think that life would be significantly improved for everyone if student debt was eliminated. I think the only people that it hurts are the people taking or administering the loans in the first place. Um, so I, I really don't know, but like encouraging more self-reflection uh, with people who have the potential to affect change.
That was Pain and Sick People by Dicruzen. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. Today, we are talking with Samantha Kuttner about how we are going to lift ourselves out of the partisan bog we've sunk so deeply into. Join Kuttner's vibrant online community for earnest, open discussion and critical thought at patreon.com slash take the glitter pill. You know, I, I would like to hear about, you know, kind of what are some of the places that you've been kind of getting inspiration uh, lately or feeling inspired lately, you know, because I think we've been talking, you know, from Proud Boys to sort of, you know, lefty gatekeeping, um, mm-hmm. kind of been mostly negative. So I'd love to hear about, yeah, some of the things that have been sort of inspiring and positive for you and what are some of the, uh, yeah, just directions that you feel hopeful about. I feel hopeful in my own community with the people that I've met um, locally, with the people who are in and making Glitter Pill what it is. Um, and in my dance community, um, having the support to begin to choreograph things and set things and have people believe in me. So my dance students give me hope. My close friends and family give me hope. Uh, my aging grandfather uh, and his sense of humor gives me hope. I can't really say I look to politics uh, to get inspired these days, Um, but I do appreciate the journalists who have reached out to me to offer perspective uh, and ask for clarity on issues because I do feel that social imperative to inform the public in a way that does something productive. Um, It gives me hope when I can help bring into awareness threats that people hadn't considered so they begin hopefully begin to do something about it um certain policies that have been enacted like when um there were three people recently who wanted to conduct a citizen's arrest of somebody something related to it was either it was either um mask mandates or anti-vaccine or something and there were legal consequences to that so seeing actions having consequences is very inspiring to me Uh, different levels of accountability, people being, you know, put in jail for things they did commit and people recognizing it as a crime. Um, I think legal recognition of that is important. Um, But inspiring, I think the books that I'm reading right now on fascism and populism are helping me contextualize and see where the differences are and then what are the what are some of the things that are incredibly timely like um, like the the route that I'm going with a certain part of this is um, the books that I'm reading combine depth psychology and fascism so it's not just the historical elements but like deeper human motivations so it's kind of comforting and inspiring to know that people were examining this much closer to the time that Nazism and, you know, and fascism was occurring. Um, so yeah, those, those are a few so far. Um, would you mind, you know, sharing the, the titles of some of the books that you're referring to? Uh, sure. Um, one of them is uh, Populism, a very short introduction by uh, Cass Mood and Cristobal Rivera Kaltwasser. One is Ordinary Violence, Everyday Assaults Against against Women 
by Mary, uh, Mary White Stewart. Another is reactionary democracy, which talks about, um, you know, how it's occurring in other countries by Aurelian Mondon and Aaron Winter. Uh, and there is another book in my room somewhere that gets more into uh, fascism and debt psychology. How do you personally sort of what, um, you know, and I know this is a big part of like what uh, Glitter Pill um, is about, but steeping yourself in that stuff, um, how do you sort of stay, uh, you know, stay positive? Earlier in this conversation, you know, you're just kind of talking about numbing, get, you know, kind of becoming numb to things by sort of constantly exposing yourself to them, right? How, um, how do you prevent that from happening? I think that, you know, just exposing yourself to stuff, you know, repeatedly with no intent is a form of self-harm. But if you have a deeper understanding, perhaps it's becoming acquainted with these things enough to work towards you know, making the, the unconscious conscious and seeing, you know, what, what you can learn, you know, what can you learn about resilience from seeing the failure of it? What can you learn about human creativity and passion and community by seeing the destruction of it? So my, my brain thinks like that. Um, but even with that, and even with like the sense of meaning I get from trying to understand these things, I still have to ground myself um, and it's through like the self-care chats in my community and dancing. I, I teach dance and I know that I, I have choreography to do. I have responsibilities to other people. So even if I wanted to kind of like give up on myself, um, there's something about nurturing that creative impulse as a necessity. I mean, also getting paid to do that. So there's like a little incentive, but it's mainly like, tapping into my own creative spirit um, and reminding myself that I'm not just a Proud Boys researcher. I, before I even got into this, I was a dancer and, you know, I was always kind of um, interested in spirit, spirituality and, and learning. And, you know, I come from a culture that values learning. So like finding ways to affirm different aspects of my identity is, is a way that I ground myself. Um, and then there's always something funny in the glitter pill community that somebody shares or like a question or, you know, when I think like, am I not doing enough? There's, there's always a member that said, you know, when you talked about this, it was very helpful. Um, and it's nice to know that this community exists for people. Uh, and it's not, you know, driven by me. It's like everyone's contributing in their own way. The idea of what you're saying of basically staying sane by finding, you know, just things that you love to do that are not deeply political, right? Or are not deeply invested in the battle between good and evil, right? And are more just about what do you like to do, right? Um, I find that that kind of is a form of, um, I don't even know what, but maybe just distraction, but in a, in a positive sense, right? I find that that's, very healthy. Um, and when I think about people in my life, for example, that um, I think might be, you know, at risk of 
taking an extremist turn. Sometimes what I find that they lack is kind of the self-awareness, you know, to sort of do what you're talking about doing, which is like pulling themselves out of the fray, right? Um, I find people do have a tendency to kind of like see, you know, like just the enemy everywhere, right? And everything that's happening in their life, you know, like you can sort of hear it in in the way that they, you know, their jokes might even be reflecting like this constant, you know, thing that's playing in their head, right? About like the political situation and, and you know, how horrible it is and and how the border, the open borders and, you know, like things things that like people understandably might be concerned about, you know, like I can understand where their concern might be coming from. But sometimes what I want to say to them is just like, hey, maybe like don't think about that for a week and then see what happens, you know, and I find that's kind of difficult to do. Right. One of the things the chairman did before he went to prison was connected me with someone to begin to establish my based and book pilled series. So as part of my ethnographic research, there have been a lot of things that came of it. Um not just media outreach, but you know, there's the, the accountability measure, the data. But then there's also, as I listen to the members talk about themes related to rejection uh, and other themes related to capitalism, but that they were kind of misattributing to feminism, I started thinking about creative ways that I could engage with them in a way that was um, mostly removed from politics and more like engaging in reading. So short readings that touch on themes um, are what I came up with. And I've started a few and tested them out and the chairman tentatively approved it, right? So he kind of told me what to do to establish myself in the communities of interest. And uh, I'm gonna talk about it more with uh, a Jewish proud boy who happens to be a rabbi, but is uh, on the, what a crazy life, uh, on the extremist side uh, and a member. Uh, so I am developing that right now and just exposure to perspectives and in an entertaining way, you know, because they're the media ecosystem that the Proud Boys live in and to extension most people right now. They're really, you know, they're reactionary. They're devoid of like any attempt at deep understanding. They're always targeting an out group. People have forgotten the joy or maybe never got to experience the joy of reading and engaging and discussion and not like, let me tell you why you're wrong, you know? So I think potentially over time exposure to different perspectives through literature could be the way to go. And uh, I'll let you know how that works, uh, but I'm gonna get that started in the next few months. We stopped to look at one another short of breath, walking proudly in our winter coats, wearing smells from laboratories, facing a dying nation of moving paper fantasy listening for the new toll eyes with supreme vision to lonely tunes somewhere inside something there is a rush of 
drink missing notes but stands in front of her life's a pet in my was Let the Sunshine In by Jennifer Warnes. You are listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Samantha Kuttner about how we can inoculate ourselves and others against the infectious power of ideological extremes. Explore Samantha's work at proudboyswhisperer.com. Once someone has gone sufficiently deep in wherever they're, they happen to be immersing themselves, right? It is so much more challenging to get them out and maybe, you know, like, I mean, it's possible, obviously, but it's a completely different ballgame. The preventative work, kind of the inoculation probably is where a lot of effort should be, right? So ideally, people are like what you're saying, you know, like reading this stuff, like not once they've already spent years in an extremist group, right? But Mm -hmm. at the time when they're vulnerable to that and, you know, what are ways that we can kind of inoculate people um, from dangerous turns in general? What do you think? Well, I mean, the most effective way, um, there's promising research by Kurt Braddock, who's now at American University and I think part of the Peril program. Um, it's hard to do now because people have already been exposed and they're already in their insular bubble bubbles, but to go up to somebody, you know, let's say somebody's approached or somebody's about to approach, or you notice that there's a trend where people are about to approach somebody with, um, multi-level marketing, for example, right. 
if you prime them and say, hey, I know you might be interested in products and with the pandemic right now, the idea of uh, being your own business person might be super appealing. However, there are some people out there who are going to try to get you involved in pyramid schemes by making you buy into a thing where you never really benefit or, you know, like whatever the, the direct counter narrative is. I want you to be aware that people might try this to persuade you. And that way you're more in a sense primed when somebody comes around and says the things that you're anticipating um, to say, oh, okay, they told me this, right? Unfortunately, it works a lot in reverse. So proud boys will prime people, you know, they say, you know, people are gonna hate you because you love the president, right? And then a liberal is like, yeah, Trump's an ass, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and oh, I, I, it was coming. I knew, right? So like you're, you're primed to see those things. So it's really hard to undo that once, once it's occurred. But with, um, with one proud boy, over the course of several months of ethnographic research conducted through asynchronous communication, uh, this proud boy, I learned, had an aversion to violence. Uh, and after talking to him, I, we were able to establish rapport and understand, even joke with each other sometimes. Uh, and throughout that, you know, I'm saying, you know, here's an example of violence without saying, oh, you hate violence? Look what the group's doing. I just said, you know, how do you view this incident? How do you square this with your values? Is this something you support? Um, and over time, he took little baby steps. So the first one was like stepping down from one of his positions as a council member. The next was trying to get uh, one member who was particularly violent and a kind of like a live wire out of the group. Um, the next, uh, we were just talking and uh, there was like one more thing that I shared with him to get his perspective. And he said, you know what, that's it, I'm out. And I mean, that gives me hope that I don't need to necessarily do anything, but create a safe enough environment where someone can begin to probe their own discrepancies between the values that they hold and the values of the group they belong to upholds. Um, so that's what's been successful for me with some individuals. Um, and it, I think that prolonged contact with the other side enough for them to let them uh, humanize you is a good strategy but you have to meet that with um engaging in a way that fosters their curiosity because that's how they got in and i think that's also the way out you know you mentioned the glitter pill community but um you know I, i'd like to kind of just ask you to you know describe again sort of what that is, um, how that fits into kind of your larger projects. And as far as, yeah, creating an environment that, you know, just like any project that we do, you know, um, is like, a, you know, a term someone else I was speaking to yesterday used like a temporary contingent utopia, right? So just a space that you, you know, if, uh, you know, if you had it your way, um, maybe the whole world would be like that, right? But obviously you kind of have to start with creating it on a small scale. Um, and so, you know, talk about the kind of community that you sort of um, 
curate or, or, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but the glitter pill community that, you know, that, that you started and what that is and kind of what your sort of hopes are for that. So the glitter pill community formed before the pandemic, but it really came together as a community during the pandemic. Um, I see it as a joyful pluralistic community where you can have hard conversations if you want and you can show up knowing it's okay to not be okay and you can be critical when you want to be critical or you know you might not have access to different experts in your community who can help guide you the right way right like say there's somebody who's like is there any validity to ivermectin you know, in taking it, you know, there could be people there, you know, waiting to say, you know, perhaps mildly joke with them, like, no, that's not a viable strategy. Let me tell you why. But it's it's more about engaging with current events at the grassroots level from both a trauma-informed perspective that is supported by the expertise that exists in the community. I don't just mean my scholarship, but there are other known uh, experts in the community. There are people of various walks of life who have different expertise. There's activists, you know, so people have come because of that infighting. I mean, it is partly a response to seeing the volume of infighting that have occurred in leftist spaces, you know, creating a space where everyone feels welcome enough to be safe, supported. They can joke, they can discuss things. Uh, without being demonized for their views. Uh, And one of the staples of our community that I'm reconfiguring right now are our self-care chats. So they involve um, some shadow work, which is just kind of sitting with feelings that society deems, you know, like not acceptable, like expressing the quality of need. Um, I think we've forgotten that we need other people, (laughs) you know, we have this, a lot of people are like, uh, you know, you have to be completely self-sufficient. You have to be successful. You have to just like go above and beyond. And then you forget, you know, your belonging to other people. So sitting with the quality of need is, is one, one potential way that, you know, shadow work works, but it's really just being honest with your emotions and allowing them to be, uh, I guess the short version of that would be feel to heal. Um, so it's a combination of it's part support group, part think tank, part spicy memes, you know, uh, it's, it's a good community to, that, that has really helped me. Like even when I was facing the most enormous institutional opposition for my research to know that there were people that believed in the value of my work and what I was doing allowed me to persist against that. It's been very hard. It's getting easier now. Our times are over, over for a while. Leaves are shining in the sun and smiling inside.
Times Are Over by Yoko Ono and John Lennon. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. Today, we are in conversation with Samantha Kuttner about the crucial power of knowledge and education, whether it comes through reading, honest conversation, or critical self-reflection, in strengthening democratic values and building sustainable resistance to violent extremism of any kind. And I will actually add, you know, because hearing you talk about that, you know, sort of made me think that the thing that will dif- that differentiates kind of how I'm kind of understanding um, the glitter pill community is it is really um, and when I mean differentiate, I mean from other supposed kind of like spaces where um, you can talk about anything. Uh, because that term to me, you know, it, it, it's interesting because in kind of today's climate, it really brings to mind sort of um, uh, the rhetoric of kind of uh, kind of more right-leaning groups, right, who go to, um, what was it called, parlor, you know, who go to platforms where they're like, here, you can talk about anything you want, right? Right. right? But the, obviously, the, you know, one of the big differences is um, this foregrounding of like being tuned in to yourself as in your needs, your pain, um, the things you're struggling with, because that is ultimately the thing that I find across the board is not only lacking, actually seems to probably be one of the fundamental problems with far right violence, extremists, et cetera, is when you look, you know, when you look at them, um, you see like a person that's in pain and like, or struggling somehow and does not know what to do with it, right? And even people who are totally on a different scale, you know, maybe not like marching on the street and, you know, and then like bashing in Antifa's heads or whatever, but who privately, you know, at home or whatever are constantly angry about the left, right? Like it's that anger in those groups, in kind of the parlor world or whatever, it never really does get processed, right? Because um, it 
those worlds kind of feed off of that, right? And and they can they can never really do kind of what you're doing, right? Which is process that, you know, metabolize it into something else. Because once you do that, you know, all of a sudden, like, you know, there's no need for um, parlor or whatever, right? Because that's kind of the whole, uh, that's what it feeds is sort of like this, I would say like much less healthy relationship to your own feelings, right? Yeah, and I think that it makes you better at communicating, negotiating, resolving conflict, um, learning about yourself, but within the context of a community, you know? Uh, if, I, I guess when, to, when it comes to free speech and you could talk about everything, right? If that Overton window has opened up sufficiently where all the racism and terrible things exist, then maybe we can have an honest conversation about racism and intergenerational trauma and structural inequality and the continuity of the transatlantic slave trade um, in a way that is honest and emotionally resonant and or potentially triggering for people, especially people who uh, consider themselves, and this is the hard thing, consider themselves to be fighting the cause of anti-racism. When you give them a glimpse of the ways that they're not really examining how they're contributing without guilting or shaming, like that can make a lot of people who are beneficiaries of the system very uncomfortable. Um, and you don't have to be a white supremacist to be a beneficiary of the system. And you don't have to be a white supremacist to be racist. I mean, I operate on the assumption that we're all inherently racist and biased. And the most we could do is come to an awareness about that without trying to shut it out of our consciousness. And the more you can begin to understand how as just being an American with the history that we have in this country, there are lingering things that we all need to deal with. Uh, and I think it could be the beginning of honest conversations. It just depends on the individual. Um, but if everybody's doing it as a community and modeling what it's like to handle constructive criticism, handle engaging with sensitive topics, handle racism, intergenerational trauma, show up saying, I really don't know how to talk about this. You know, uh, that might be a good start. Uh, how can people join the Glitter Pill community? Where can people find your work and kind of find more information about that? Um, and uh, yeah, just any other, you know, kind of parting thoughts so how people can kind of um, just follow you and what you do. Sure. Um, I am beginning to explore Instagram more. Um, the dance account that's connected to my research is just Samantha Q and then my last name, Putner. Um, I have temporarily opened the Glitter Pill Facebook group to people. So in my Instagram stories is where I link where you can find the group. There are, you know, that's of course subject to vetting and, um, and other things. Um, I you can join and become a supporting member of the community. I think the lowest price is like a dollar a month on Patreon um, and support our community resilience efforts because our goal is to make everything that we offer from the podcast to the self-care chats to different resources to different courses, like fully sustainable. Um, so if you support on Patreon, uh, it's just patreon.com slash take the glitter pill. Um, but you can benefit even if you aren't, you know, I, I, I want to leave it open to as many people who need the type of community right now. Um, so you can also look on Twitter for the research uh, where I'm 
Ashkenaz 89. Uh, and then to learn more about the glitter pill community and the aims of it, you can visit the website, proudboyswhisperer.com slash glitter pill. If you are more on the um, data-driven activism side, there is a public report form available where you can add incidents that are occurring in your city. And that will be screened by people on my team before being made public. Um, but there's so much that you can start with. I would start with um, checking out the Facebook community, checking out the Instagram account, listening to the podcast episodes where it's just the Glitter Pill podcast and uh, getting informed and exposing yourself to stuff to see what you might want to do in the community and what might benefit you. Today, we were in conversation with Samantha Kuttner about the Proud Boys, masculinity, economic turmoil, populism, reading, honest dialogue, dance, and self-care. Kuttner works to counter violent extremism by reminding us that we need other people, that we belong to one another. A social fabric comprised of torn individual pieces connected to one another only by resentful fraying threads is not a social fabric at all. If we are serious about the work of repairing whatever it is that we have broken, and there are no doubt many things to repair, then we must always start by finding, treasuring, and expanding whatever common ground we still have. Of course, it can always sound hokey or naive, or any of those other words we use to deflect accountability and excuse our own inaction. But Kuttner's work and research prove that engaging directly with people who are either at risk of joining or already steeped in extremist movements is in fact the only path forward. Learn more about her work at proudboyswhisperer.com. Join her pluralistic online community where she fosters critical thinking and honest interpersonal exchange directed towards self-care and community care at patreon.com slash take the glitter pill. Thanks for listening. Till next time, this was Soft Power Radio. I just want to ask you some questions about the spaceship. The count is picked up at zero, minus ten seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six, 